0: All right. Good morning, guys. I'm really happy to be back with you guys in this way. Uh, I've missed doing this with you, so I'm excited. We, of course, are one church in three locations, and our Carpinteria campus and Ventura campus will be watching this. So let's let them know that we love them. And uh, next week, we'll be back in the book of Ephesians, and we're going to go ahead and study the whole book of Ephesians, so we'll be in it for a long time, and it's going to be a good time. It's an incredible book. I'm, I'm so uh, looking forward to it. Lord's going to teach us wonderful things. Before we get to that, that'll be next week. I've, I've got a message on my heart for this week, okay? This is for all of us. Um, I believe this is a word from the Lord. So the title of this message is, How to Go to Church how to go to church. It was kind of odd because you're all in church and now I'm presuming to tell you how to do it. You're here after all looking so good. But I do want to talk about how to go to church because the gathering of the church is incredibly important and it requires purposeful participation. So what I want to do, hopefully, with this message by the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Jesus Christ, is to help us move as a gathering in the church from passive observation to active engagement. How to go to church? Moving from passive observation to active engagement. If you have a Bible, you can open to Colossians chapter 3. By the way, you should just have a Bible, If you're a Christian, um, have a Bible. Bring a Bible when you come to church. That's the first point. Didn't even plan it, but there's one. How to go to church, bring a Bible. Colossians chapter 3. I will be reading from the New Living Translation this morning. Colossians chapter 3. And we'll get there in a few minutes. But let's ask the Lord's blessing now. Let's ask him to speak to us. Lord, we thank you for the church. As messy as it is, as strange as it can get, as difficult as it can be, with all its wonderment and activity and ins and outs, we thank you for it. say together that it's yours. It is wholly and fully yours. And that you're the head over it and the senior pastor of it. And so we ask that you would, by your word and by your spirit today, speak to us about the church, and how we ought to go to church, what that means, what it would look like to be engaged worshipers. Thank you that we are, so many of us here at our campuses in Santa Barbara, Carpinteria and Ventura, but there's room for growth, Lord. We know that. Thank you that you love us, and that you're kind to us, that you're patient toward us, that you have compassion on us, view us as children, that you're crazy about. So speak to us in that way today, Lord. I ask that I would be a faithful mouthpiece, that I would rightly convey your heart and your truth for your glory in your church. Please, Lord, give us ears to hear. We pray it together in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I want to remind us of something very important from Ephesians chapter 1 that we spent quite a bit of time thinking about, and it's this that even before he made the world, God loved you and chose you in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. And he adopted you into his own family through Christ. And this is what God wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure. And when you believed in Christ, God identified you as his own. Before you ever made the world, God loved you and chose you. He adopted you into his own family as his children. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as being his special possession, his very own people. So the gathering then of God's people, the gathering of the church, coming to church is actually a fulfillment of God's ancient desire. Listen to that because that's huge. Going to church, the gathering of the church is the fulfillment of God's ancient desire. God has had this desire since before the foundations of the world that became a reality when he spoke the world into existence. Because there he was in the garden with Adam and Eve whom he had made in his own image. And it was good. God wanted to be with people. Isn't that weird? Because some of you don't even want to be with people. God wanted to be With people. We're reading in the book of Exodus right now, in the one-year Bible reading. And uh, we're we're getting this week to the chapters where God instructs Moses and the people to build the tabernacle. And he'll say in chapter 25 of Exodus and in chapter 30 of Exodus, that there in the tabernacle, I will meet with my people. He wanted to be with his people in the garden. Sin entered in, the fall, separation from God, God raises up Israel, begins to reveal himself anew to humanity, has them construct the tabernacle where he says, I will meet with my people, fulfilling the desire of his heart to be with his people. And if you look at the end of it all, the book of Revelation, what we see in Revelation 21 is, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. In another translation, God is dwelling with his people. The ultimate fulfillment of God's ancient desire to be with those who are his. So the gathering in the church, going to church, is a fulfillment of God's ancient desire. It's not primarily our desire. In fact, some of you don't even really want to be here today. It's not primarily our desire. It's God's Desire. Made possible by the cross, the blood of Jesus, and fulfilled in the church, the gathering of God's people. It's not primarily our desire, it's his desire. And it's not primarily about us. It's about him. The church gathering together is not primarily about us. It's primarily about God. So, what we do then when we come to church, remember the title of this message is How to Go to Church. What we do then when we go to church is we gather to, for, and around Jesus. Okay, that, that's what we're doing right now. We're gathering to, for, and around Jesus. What we do when we go to church is we gather to, for, and around Jesus. And so, we ought to begin to think then of our gathering, of our participation in it, of our going, of our being here, as being all about him. And and, and that can be difficult, right? Because there's competing needs. There's my needs, There's like my brokenness and and, and my sin and and my pain and my healing need and my this and my that and and my gifts and my position and what I contribute. There's all these things that would compete for attention. There's strong personalities. There's all these things that would, would compete for attention, but we have to make it about Jesus. It's his desire. It's about him and what the church is. Is the gathering of Christ to, for, and around him. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus calls the church his. It's not our church, right? We often say, I'm going to my church, but it's not really our church. I know what we mean. He says, it's my church. I will build my church, he says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Can somebody say amen? amen. Salient point for us this morning is that he calls the church his own. It is his blood-bought bride. Precious. Not redeemed with perishable things like gold and silver, but with the imperishable blood of Christ. The church is his. He owns it. It's his blood-bought bride. Jesus is the head of the church, Scripture says. Jesus is the goal of the church, Scripture teaches. Jesus is the chief Shepherd of the church. R.K. poimen in the Greek from 1 Peter. It means, translated, he's the senior pastor of the church. That's why, for example, this church, we just don't call any human senior pastor. We just remove that title from our ecclesiology because the only one called that in Scripture is Jesus. He's the senior pastor of the church. He's the head guy. Everyone else is underneath him. There, of course, is some structure and some leadership that the New Testament would teach us. There are, of course, elders and leaders within the church and different gifts functioning and so on and so forth. We've got 13 elders at this church all trying to follow Jesus and, and then others interacting together trying to be faithful to Jesus. But he's the senior pastor. He's the senior pastor. Who's the pastor of your church? Jesus. What do you mean? That's what I mean. He's the head of the church, the goal of the church, the senior pastor of the church. Jesus is the one who owns the church. Jesus is the one who loves the church. He's the one who loves the church. And he is the object of the church's activity. It's worship, it's preaching, it's mission. He's the object of it. We're worshiping him, we're preaching him, and we're bringing people to him. And he is the one who has saved us. People without Jesus, we're going to hell. Without Jesus, we're weighed down by the guilt and the shame and the stain of sin. Without Jesus, we're separated from God with no hope. Without Jesus, we're, we're lost and our souls are unanchored and we're wandering. We have no peace. We have no source and center of joy. There's no meaning in life apart from Jesus. Jesus is the one who saved us by giving himself on the cross to die in our place and rising from the dead to conquer sin, death, and the devil to give us new life. Therefore, the church is all about him. What else could it be about? In light of all those things, he owns the church, he's the head of the church, he's a senior pastor of the church, he's the one who loves the church, he's the goal of the church, he's the object of its activity, and he's the one who gave himself for us and saved us from sin, death, and the devil. What else could it be about? So the church and the church gathering is all about Jesus. Now in saying that, we, we must say this, we realize that church is not merely something that we go to. The church is something we are. We, we get that, right? We, we don't go to church. We are the church. The church is not a building. That'd be a disappointment. This one's a gym. <laughs> Carpinteria campus, Ventura campus have buildings, but we're in a gym in Santa Barbara. Church is not a building. Church is a people who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Church is not something we just go to. The church is something we are. And if your Christianity exists primarily in going to church, then you don't actually have Christianity, what you have is churchianity. It's not as good. It's not as biblical. It's not what's meant to be. If your Christianity is primarily just going to church and you don't have Christianity, you have churchianity. We are the church and the church exists in two modes. Okay, the church exists in two modes, and it's gathering and scattering. The church is the people of God bought by the blood of Jesus who gather to, for, and around him and scatter on mission with him. The church exists in two modes gathering and scattering. As the church scattered, we endeavored to be faithful to Jesus in all the areas of our lives. We endeavor to be faithful to Jesus in our parenting, in our marriages in our dating, in our vocations, in our sexuality, in our finances, in our recreation. As a church scattered, what we're doing in the world to be faithful witnesses is we're endeavoring to be faithful to Christ and the word of God in every area of our lives. There's no area that's exempt. We don't put up walls to Jesus and say, you can have Sunday, but Monday's mine. Right? As a church scattered, we're endeavoring to be faithful in every facet of our life to him and his truth. And we are learning to live life on mission with him, where we are right now. We don't believe that mission is something that someone does over there. We believe that mission is what every one of us is called to do right here. Where we are, what we do, who we are, that each one of us is sent by Jesus to fulfill his purposes in the world within our unique gifting and unique sphere of influence that each and every Christian is a sent person, called, anointed to live life on mission, to explain and expose Jesus to as many people as possible. So as a church scattered in that mode, which is what we do when we're not in this building together, as a church scattered, we're endeavoring to live faithfully in every area of our lives and we're endeavoring to be on mission with Jesus to everyone that we encounter. As a church gathered though, primarily the focus of our talk this morning, as a church gathered, we are exalting only Jesus. We are putting our hope only in Jesus and we are giving all of our attention to Jesus. When the church gets together, okay, when we're not scattered, when we're gathered, we're gathering to, for, and around him. God recently gave me a vision as I was praying for our church. And uh, what do I mean by vision? I don't know what I mean by vision. I just like, had this vision. What do you mean? I don't know what I mean. I had this vision from God. It doesn't happen that often with me. It happens on occasion. It's a supernatural thing from God. Some of you are like, did you like see it? I don't know, dude. I, I had a vision, okay? It's one of those weird spiritual things. Uh, how many of you have ever been to a concert? Raise your hand. Okay, almost everybody here. How many of you have been like concert goers at one point in your life? Like you had a favorite band and you like went not that many of you, I was fully that person because believe it or not, I used to follow the Grateful Dead. That's cute that some of you are applauding. I don't know what that means. But in my late teens, and my early 20s, I used to follow the Grateful Dead. I was a deadhead and went to all the dead shows and, and did that whole thing. So I, I, I have this concept within me that what it means to be like a concert goer. Okay, like you're not just attending, you're like there, right? Some of you know what I mean. What about some of you folks that are a little bit older, like went through the 60s and 70s? You did some concerts, (laughs) right? Like, you know what I'm talking about. My mom, uh, my mom is so cool. In 1967, my mom hitchhiked from, she was 17, I think. She hitchhiked from uh, San Clemente to Monterey to see Jimi Hendrix play the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967. (laughs) <laughs> Coolest mom in the world. And she would probably still do it today <laughs> if Jimmy were alive. <laughs> I'm kidding with that. Anyway, <clears throat> my point is this. God gave me a vision. We're obviously now far from that. But it had to do with the concert. So that's why I ask how many of you have been to a concert and experience a concert? Okay, here's here's kind of the picture he gave me. When you're at a concert, especially if you're like, this is your band, like you're a concert goer, you're like there, you know what I mean? When that concert begins and that band takes center stage, when they're there doing their thing, like nothing else matters right nothing else matters so as soon as the lights drop and the music starts to play everyone kind of tries to crowd the stage a little closer right if you're up in general mission try to crowd a little closer and all of a sudden your personal space don't even care anymore yeah. because you're so focused on what's going on in front of you so now the person that like was over here from you and you wanted them over there when the lights were on now that the lights are off it's like You're like banging each other, and you're like, yeah, yeah, and you're stepping on each other, and nobody's like stopping in the middle of the concert and be like, dude, you stepped on my toe. You fully offended me right now. Like, why? (laughs) Like, nobody's doing that, right? It's Monterey Pop Festival, 1967, Hendrix's American debut after being in England, like, Nobody's tripping, right? Nobody's tripping on what the people next to them are doing. You're like slopping your drink on them and throwing the elbow, woo! You don't even know this person. You're like, yeah, high five. During the encore, you're like arms around each other, like, oh, Right? Because you're so into what's happening on center stage. That you're not tripped up when somebody steps on your toe or spills on you or offends you or invades your space or or doesn't respect you in a certain way. It just doesn't matter because what's happening on center stage is so awesome. Now, when the lights go on and the band leaves the stage, you're like, don't touch me. Okay, go, hurry, hurry, hurry. I want to get to my car. I want to get out of here. I want to get to my parking space and leave. It's like all of a sudden, you're like normal again, right? And like if somebody bumps you as you're walking out, you're like, what? Gosh. <laughs> like all of a sudden, don't step on my toes. Don't touch me. Don't offend me. But when the music was playing and, and the gig was happening on center stage, it, it, all the people stuff around you didn't matter. That's what we see going on in the book of Revelation, chapter five, chapter seven. When every tongue, tribe, and nation is crowded around the throne where Jesus sits, singing with every fiber of their being, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive glory, honor, and power, for thou didst purchase us with thy blood. That's what's supposed to be happening in the church is is that we're so aware of the fact, as the church, that it's all about Jesus. That he has center stage in our hearts and our minds so that we don't get tripped up on stepping on each other's toes and the little offenses and the sloppy little moments. And so God gave me this vision. I just explained it in five minutes, but it happened in an instant. God gave me this vision that Christ is so supposed to be on center stage in our hearts and our minds, that we're just at peace with one another, that we're just easy with one another, that when we're bumping up against each other, rubbing up against each other and offending each other, it's okay because what's happening on center stage with Jesus is way bigger than any of our offenses. And I, I know the Lord gave it to me personally as a rebuke. And and I, I also believe that the Lord has given it to, to all of us to reality. Okay, Santa Barbara campus, Carpentry Campus, Ventura campus, given it to, to all of us as a warning that we keep Jesus on the center stage of our hearts and our minds. Peter wrote in chapter two and and said to this, you are coming to Christ. Okay, here's what he said to the churches in Asia Minor. You are coming to Christ, who is a living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And listen, and you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. We're coming to Christ, we're gathering around Christ. We're we're living stones in the way we make up the temple of God. And here's what I know, is that when people made uh, temples out of stones, they had to fit the stones together. And then when they put the stones together, there were little edges because the tooling was imperfect in those days and the masonry was imperfect to some degree. And so there were little edges and they put stones together and they'd rub against each other and they'd they'd knock off the little edges until everything fit together perfectly. And we're living stones who come to Jesus being built up by the Spirit of God and we're going to knock against each other. We're going to rub each other wrong. We're going to encounter each other's rough edges and difficulties and imperfections. And as long as we're coming to Jesus, to for and around Jesus, and he's on the center stage of our hearts and our minds, it's just gonna be easier with one another. And I, I think that God has given us this prophetic vision because there's enough of us in the church that makes up reality here in Santa Barbara, Carpinteria, Ventura, that, that somehow we, we have let Jesus slip off center stage in our hearts and minds. And so we're just having a lot of Horizontal difficulties. Just a lot of people difficulties. Just drama. Difficult to forgive. Just not letting love cover a multitude of sins. A little, little bit of slandering. A little bit of gossiping. Grumbling. Complaining. So I know the Lord has rebuked me in that. And, and, and the imagery that, that he brings or the scripture that he brings to go with this imagery is Colossians 3 where you are now and I'm just going to read it starting in verse one, he says, since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven. Set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of the earth. For you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life, who's on center stage, when Christ who is your life is revealed to the whole world, so you will, sh- you will share in all the, his glory. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still a part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of your anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you've stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Christ is on center stage of our lives and our gatherings. So our differences don't matter, is what that text is saying. Verse 12 Since God chose you to be holy people, he loves you, must clothe yourselves with tender hearted mercy. Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Man, I am none of those things apart from clothing myself in Christ. Look what verse 13 says. Okay, here's what the vision is all about. Making allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. The hardest verse in the New Testament right here. Remember, the Lord forgave you so you must forgive others. Help me, God. Help me, God. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. See, there's that, that, that concert analogy again. Binds us together in perfect harmony. Right, what's happening on the center stage, Jesus, we're just in harmony with that, just bound together, one, not, not tripped up by each other. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you're called to live in peace. And always be thankful. Let the message about Christ and all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And so I know the Lord wanted to rebuke me with that concert vision. I, I know he just wants to lovingly challenge us about whether or not he's on center stage in our hearts and minds and in our gathering and in our being the church and our scattering and our relationships with one another. And if anyway he's not, the evidence of it is going to be in in our little snits with each other. That's the evidence. When Jesus is on center stage, we're just so perturbed by one another, so offended by one another, so hard to overlook each other's faults and sins against us. So we have to put Jesus back on center stage because as we talked about as the one who gave his blood for us, he's worth it. Anything else on center stage is stupid, right? I mean, it's like, it's, it's like you got the best band in the world on center stage and someone rolls up with their little garage band and says, let me play a few tunes. You're like, dude, please get off the stage. <laughs> no one else should be on center stage. Isn't that right? What else could this thing, being the church and gathering as a church, what else could it possibly be about? And don't you think that if we exalt Jesus Christ in our hearts and our minds and our being as a church and our gathering as a church that it will begin to heal our horizontal differences and hurts? That's the only place we're going to find healing. It's when we exalt Jesus to the place of supreme. When we continually rejoice in the forgiveness that we've been shown, that we might forgive one another. Colossians 3 says that thinking on Christ and his exaltation helps us in our relationships and our irritations. So maybe then, as the church, when the church gathers, maybe we can approach our gatherings differently by doing this, by putting all of our hope and our expectations in Jesus. Okay, we all have expectations, subconscious or conscious, that we're aware of or unaware of when we're gathering as a church. So what if we purposefully put all of our expectations in Jesus? Our expectations weren't in the sermon or who was teaching. It wasn't in the worship or what's being sung. It wasn't in the fellowship or our needs getting met. It wasn't in any person. Because people will always let you down, but Jesus will never let you down. And if our hopes and our expectations about the church and the gathering of the church are about people and what they can do, you're always going to be disappointed. Disappointed. I mean, let's just be honest. If, you, if, you, if your expectations are somehow connected to me, you're, you're gonna be disappointed. But if all of our expectations and our hopes are in Jesus, we will never be disappointed. And we'll be able to weather the differences. Because we weren't looking to one another for peace and joy and satisfaction and security. We're looking to Jesus. So we need to do that when we're gathering before we come. We need to come expectant as active exalters of Christ, active worshipers, not just passive observers. See, I I think that's a problem in a a lot of the churches gathering is sometimes we just show up. And I don't think we're meant to just show up when we go to church. I really don't. I know that we do that, but that's, I don't think that's what we're supposed to do. I think, I don't think we're supposed to show up. I think we're supposed to come expectantly, expecting to exalt Jesus with all of our hopes securely pinned on and in Him. Because the gathering of the church is not an event. It's not an event. It can feel like that because of the sort of sociological dynamics and the way that it happens and stuff, but, but it's not an event. The gathering of the church is a holy fulfillment of God's ancient desire made possible by the spilling of the blood of Jesus. It is a holy convocation. It is a call from the sovereign God of the universe for his people to come together and meet with him. Cannot see it as an event. We cannot lower our expectations to that place. We have to see it as a holy, fulfillment of god's ancient desire made possible by the spilling of the blood of his son we have to see it as precious and powerful holy and glorious it's always going to be hard right because people are involved so we're always going to mess it up but remember our expectations and our hopes are in christ not in one another So there's always this hope that it can be holy and powerful, awesome and glorious because we're coming expectant about Jesus with all of our hopes in him, gathering to, for, and around him. So what might that look like practically? Well, number one, what if we, before we came to church, we, we prepared our hearts and our minds? Like right now, probably we spend more time preparing our outfits and our hair than our hearts and minds. Some of us not so much with the hair, huh, Dr. D? But most of us, we're good like that. Most of us spend more time preparing our outfits and our hair than our hearts and our minds are coming true. Think about that. Think about that. That's, that's probably not the way to do it. So what have we actually prepared our hearts and minds? What if we prayed before we came to church? Took a moment, or grabbed our spouse, or came to the prayer meeting that happens an hour before the services? What if, what if we prayed before we came to church and just said something like, Jesus, all my hope is in you. Thank you that your mercies are new this morning. I'm, I'm going to gather with those people that make up the church to exalt you. I want to make it too foreign about you. I want to meet with you and experience you and enjoy you and hear from you and exalt you. Do that in my heart. What what if we just said that prayer? Believing that God hears and answers. I think that because we're starting to believe that the church is the ancient fulfillment or the fulfillment of God's ancient desire and that it's holy and glorious, I think then that we should come to church on time. Like, like, if there was anything that we we're ever on time for, because here's what we, here's what we believe about the church, right? We have to believe this. This is what Scripture says: that when the church gathers, Christ is present. Have to believe that. If you don't believe that, don't, don't, don't come to church. Okay, surfing would be so much better than this if we didn't believe that Christ was present. What we believe about the church, because the Scriptures say this, is that Christ is present when we gather. So if we believe that Christ is here and and we we would have to assume he's probably here on time or like before. (laughs) And if he's waiting for his people whom he bought with his blood, his blood-bought bride to gather to, for, and around him, it would seem to make all the sense in the world that we would make every effort to come on time. Because that that first set of music is is not a warm-up for the preacher. It's not this this buffer zone from when it starts to when you really have to be there. It's not this time that allows you to get your coffee or drop off your kids. It is truly the time when the bridegroom, the exalted king of the universe, is waiting for his blood-bought, redeemed bride to gather and sing to his name it's holy it's the precious fulfillment of his ancient desire I think then what we can also do is is make then worship the climax of our gathering I think sometimes in American church culture, we've made the sermon, which is a form of worship I'll talk about in a moment. I'm not nearly done. I think sometimes we've made the sermon the climax, but but really, worship is to be the climax of the gathering of the church. Like what the cross does is it takes rebels and it makes us worshipers. There's not going to be a single sermon in heaven. Thank you, Jesus. I will not be Brit, the preacher in heaven. I will be Brit, the worshiper in heaven. That's the fulfillment. That's God's ancient desire, is that we worship him. So in our gathering, we ought to make worship the climax. The sermon prepares your heart to worship. The sermon prepares your heart to repent. The sermon prepares your heart to pray. The sermon expounds and explains and exposes and exalts Jesus to bring us to a place of worshiping him. I think the other thing that we could be purposeful then about when the church gathers is is the spiritual disciplines and practicing them. So participating in prayer. So when there's public prayer, we like actually more than just bow our head, we're like praying together. When there's opportunities to pray with one another in the prayer team, we, we come and we take part in that. Every week there's communion here. We come and we take communion where we remember Christ and proclaim his death until he comes. So we celebrate Christ in that. We're purposeful about postures of praise. So biblical expressions like lifting our hands to the Lord and kneeling before the Lord. That's why we have worship carpets, right? Bowing before the Lord, getting on our faces. Heaven have mercy, dancing a little bit to the Lord. Send the Bible. David danced in his underwear in 2 Samuel 6. I'm not recommending it, but it'd be totally biblical if we did that. (laughs) And then I think we ought to just come then when the church gathers also, meaning to love people, meaning to love people. It's weird, I know, because we've got all of our own needs and we come in and we want our needs to be met, but if we make it about that, it'll never happen. It's a weird thing in Christianity. But if we make it about Jesus and others, He seems to take care of us. So if we come like meaning to love people, like I'm not just gonna get church on time. I'm gonna go a little bit early and find some people and love them. And when it's over, I'm not just gonna bail. I'm gonna like hang out and meet a few people and love them. And maybe I'm gonna find someone needy, someone broken, someone that needs prayer, someone that just needs a friend, someone that feels like the outcast, a stranger. We come meaning to love people realizing that what binds us together in our gathering to, for, and around Jesus is greater than anything that would ever threaten to tear us apart or differentiate us. Now, I said to make worship the climax and not the sermon, but the sermon is also worship, for it expounds, explains, exposes, and exalts Jesus. So it's to worship, but I was speaking about the musical praise and worship that we do before and after it. But the sermon is also worship, so... We ought to think about when we gather, how we listen to sermons. We ought to listen to them actively and not passively. We should listen to sermons worshipfully. We should realize that this is, if it's done correctly, and it's not always done correctly. But if it's done correctly, this is the explaining, exposing, expounding upon, and exalting of the person of Jesus. So so the preaching of it and the hearing of it in and of itself is an act of worship. We ought to hear sermons worshipfully. And we have to hear them as worshipers, not connoisseurs. Connoisseurs who would just kind of take a sip and swish it around our mouths and spit it out and then analyze it. And oh, the tannins and the fruitiness and the... <laughs> you, you never want to become a connoisseur of sermons. You want to become a worshiper through them. They're not all going to be good. We want to listen to them less anthropocentrically. In other words, less about people, less about the person giving it and less about you hearing it. Right? If you make the sermon all about you, how's this going to fix me? How's this going to help me? And what, what new thing am I going to learn? And what revelation am I going to see that's failure right there? You want to listen to them Christologically. How's this worshiping and exposing and explaining and exalting Jesus How is this making Jesus seem bigger and people seem smaller? Jesus seem bigger and people seem smaller. That's what a good sermon ought to do. How does this make Jesus seem bigger and people seem smaller? We ought to then realize that in the sermon, what we're looking to do is not just hear about Jesus, but connect with Jesus. Right? It's God meeting with his people in the gathering of the church. It's not information about Jesus that's going to deliver you. It's Jesus that's going to deliver you. Not information about him. So the word of God is an opportunity to connect with the person of God in Christ. So then we ought to be engaged, which is always required in worship. We ought ought to be humble, surrendered, and expectant. J.C. Ryle was a guy who uh, lived in England, was a preacher, an author, a pastor. He died in the year 1900. Brought a picture of him. Awesome looking guy. Oh, that's me. Also an awesome looking guy. (laughs) Okay. Look at him. Can you see that picture very well? Campuses, you guys will see it better. They have better technology at the other campuses. But that guy I want to be when I grow up. Look how cool he is with a beard. That's why I'm growing a beard right now. Like just awesome. Okay. Anyway, J.C. Ryle had some uh, helpful suggestions about hearing sermons. Number one, we must hear with faith, believing implicitly that every word of God is true and shall stand. Seeing there, infallible, authoritative, living and active, everlasting Word of God. So, so we should hear it preached with faith. Number two, we must hear with reverence. Remembering constantly that the Bible is the book of God. Like God wrote a book. We should hear it with reverence and awe. Number three, and this this is really important. We must hear with prayer. Praying for God's blessing before the sermon is preached. Praying for God's blessing again when the sermon is over. Listen to this. Listen to this. This is genius. Here lies the grand effect of the hearing of many. They ask no blessing, and so they have none. The sermon passes through their minds like water through a leaky vessel and leaves nothing behind. After the sermon then, since it was about Jesus, we want to respond. Okay? This is the second set of worship. And here's where I begin to end this message. The second set of worship. Let me just say about the second set of worship. Since the sermon is designed to lead us to that place, to the worship of Jesus Christ, the second set of worship is a climax of our gatherings as a church, the way that we've structured, the way that we do our stuff. So, so the second set is, is a climax. So nobody should leave at that time. Nobody should leave at that time. If you have to go to the bathroom, by all means, go to the bathroom. God knows he understands, he made you. <laughs> but, but nobody should say, the sermon is over, now I can go home. I understand that mindset, I really do. I, when I first started going to church um, in my early 20s, I went as a little kid and then I didn't go all through junior high and high school. Early 20s started going in back, go, go, started going back, excuse me. And I made sure that I got there after all the music and stayed for the sermon and then left before they could play any more music. It was just where I was at. I was interested in the sermon. I was interested in Jesus and the information, but this whole sing-song thing wasn't for me. So I, I understand being in that place, but, but here's what I wish. I wish that at that time, somebody had explained to me the value of exalting Jesus corporately in song, of responding to the word that had been preached in repentance and praise. I wish that I had been given the opportunity to do that. I think that it would have furthered the effect of the sermons that I was so eager to hear if I had stayed and lingered in, marinated in the presence of Christ, manifest by the Holy Spirit, and allow Him to work in my life. So that's what we're doing in the second set of worship. We preached about Jesus and now we want to marinate, linger in his presence and let his spirit do the full work in us. So we're worshiping during that time. And let me just say about worship that what we're doing is we're giving God the glory that is due to his name. He deserves it. It's the glory that is due to him and we don't give it. We're just, we're holding back something that's his something that we are purchased to do, to give him glory and praise. And so when there's an opportunity as a church gathered to praise God, to exalt him in song, it's not really about whether or not we feel like it. It's really about the fact that Jesus is worthy of it. And if you make worship about how you feel, then it's, it's, it's not worship. It'll, it'll never be worship. That's just not what it is your feelings may go along with it or they may not. When they don't, then it's what Hebrews calls the sacrifice of praise. Giving the thanks, the fruit of lips that praise his name. So we're given glory that is due his name. It's about him and not us. And remember that when Pastor Al taught us about the road to understanding scripture, he taught us that it is difficult sometimes to understand scripture, but the destination is always worth it. The destination is Jesus. The destination of every church gathering is Jesus and exalting him together. So we ought to give ourselves to that time of worship. And we ought to give ourselves to that time of prayer. This is a time to pray in response to him being exalted in the sermon. The prayer team is up there. This is a time to get prayed for if you're having difficulties And so as a church gathered, we ought to be practicing those spiritual disciplines. We we ought to realize that Christ is present and available. Turn to Psalm uh, 116, if you would. Psalm 116. We'll read this and be done. Sort of. Psalm 116, talking about as a a church gathered, we ought to rejoice and be mindful of and, and engage in the fact that he is present to hear. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my prayer for mercy. Because he bends down to listen, I will pray as long as I have breath. Death wrapped its ropes around me. The terrors of the grave overtook me. I saw only trouble and sorrow. See, we we feel that way a lot, don't we? We feel that way a lot when we show up to church. I do. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Please, Lord, save me. How kind is the Lord. How good is he. So merciful, this God of ours. The Lord protects those of childlike faith. I was facing death and he saved me. Let my soul be at rest again for the Lord has been good to me. He saved me from death, my eyes from tears and my feet from stumbling. And so I walk in the Lord's presence as I live here on earth. I believed in you. So I said, I'm deeply troubled, Lord. I believed in you. So I brought my stuff to you. I'm deeply troubled, Lord. In my anxiety, I cried to you. These people are all liars. What can I offer to the Lord for all he's done for me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and praise the Lord's name for saving me. I will keep my promise to the Lord in the presence of all his people, the gathered church. The Lord cares deeply when his loved ones die. Oh Lord, I'm your servant. Yes, I am your servant, born into your household. You freed me from my chains. I will offer you a sacrifice of thanksgiving worship, and call upon the name of the Lord, prayer. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, the church gathering, in the house of the Lord, in the heart of Jerusalem. There's, there's nothing about that description that would say that we should just be passive before the Lord when we gather. We should be so active because he bows down to hear our voice and to heal us to restore us, to show his kindness to us. And so then, one one of the facets of our second set of worship, one of the most important parts of the church gathering, is that we have this willingness to repent. So the sermon wasn't about us, it was about Jesus, but it sure did teach us some things about us, didn't it? When they're done right. And so during that second set of worship, we have an opportunity to repent, to repent of our sins to get prayer if we need prayer, if we're stuck, if there's a stronghold, if there's oppression, if there's overwhelming circumstances, to get on our faces before the Lord and repent because he hears and he heals. He restores and renews us. And so we take communion and we assume these postures of prayer and these postures of praise. And now, even though we've been talking mostly about the church gathering. This is also what it ought to look like in the church's scattering. Said simply, we make it all about Jesus. And when we do that, all of our issues with one another are much easier to navigate and Christ is glorified in our love and our worship, amen? Lord, thank you for teaching me and us these things. We ask that, Holy Spirit, you would continue to teach us what it means to be the church and what it means to go to church. Thank you that you're kind to us. Thank you that you're merciful. Holy Spirit, make application for our lives now. We ask for our church, Lord, here in Santa Barbara and in Carpentry and Ventura, that you would put a mantle of praise on us when we gather, that you would draw forth praise from the hearts of men and women, And that your presence would always be real and tangible, that it would be astounding and almost scary when we gather. Nobody would be able to escape the beautiful, wonderful presence of the living God. And we say, Jesus, that you're worthy of all of our attention and all of our praise. Who is like you? You're the great and awesome king. And you're the beautiful and kind savior. Enjoy, Lord, the gathering of your people as we bless your name.